You're listening to Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. Here's what's coming up in today's edition. We can all see that the time is close. Any extended time is pure grace to allow more to come in before the horrific events of the Great Tribulation. On the heels of Great Tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ will take place. Look what he said. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. In our current cultural climate, we are constantly told that the end is near. Whether it's scientists telling us we'll run out of water, or religion telling us that the end times are upon us, what are we to make of all of it? Today, Pastor Jeff shows you how to find peace while navigating the suffering of this world. The end times of this earth are inevitable, but there is no way of knowing when. Get rid of the uncertainty in your life by accepting God's free gift of grace. Stake your claim in His perfect kingdom. Well, let's join Pastor Jeff in the book of Mark chapter 13 as he continues his message, Jesus' startling future prediction. Jesus said, it's more than an idol. At first, it's an idol set in the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem, standing where it ought not. And as Matthew puts it, standing in the holy place. Second, it's a filthy, disgusting idol that brings desolation. It's called the abomination of desolation. Desolation meaning nothing and no one remains in the temple. It brings the complete and total devastating judgment of God when this happens. It's important to point out that this is not merely an idol uh, set in the Jewish temple. Passages like Jeremiah 7.30 and other passages describe abominable idols in the temple, but they are not the abomination that brings desolation. That's what Jesus said to watch for. Again, something like the abomination of desolation Almost happened again in 40 AD when Caligula, you've heard that name, was the emperor of Rome. He was crazy, baby, and totally depraved. And Caligula was a madman, decided to set up a statue of himself in the holy place of the temple of Jerusalem. He set the statue, or he sent the statue by ship, and on its way down to Jerusalem, he died before it arrived and it was never set up, or it would have been an abomination of desolation again, another idol in there. Essentially, here's what we're talking about. The abomination of desolation speaks of the ultimate desecration of a Jewish temple, an idolatrous image in the holy place itself, which will inevitably result in the judgment of God. It is the abomination that brings desolation. It has not happened yet. Not what Jesus was talking about. It's still future. The abomination of desolation is the object of religious nausea and loathing who has to do with desolation, one commentator wrote. The Hebrew expression used in Daniel describes an abomination so detestable It causes the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and provokes desolation. Now, believe it or not, Paul the Apostle chimed in on this in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verses 3 and 4. Here's what he said. 
Pay close attention. Now we're getting to where it matters to you and me. He said, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped. So that, watch this, he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God or stating that he is God. Now, Paul says by the Spirit of God in the New Testament, way back 21 centuries ago, he said, here's what's going to happen. The end of time is not going to come until a man, not an it, not a thing, it's not neuter, it's a man, anthropos, a man, walks into the temple, sits in the holy place, and says, I am God. That man is the Antichrist. That is the abomination of desolation. Daniel 12, 11 gives additional insight. From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days until the end. Now, let me make this simple for you. When this sign is set up, the end can be determined. When this happens, the end of time as we know it can be marked down and checked off. It is almost three and one half years to go before the triumphant return of Jesus to this earth in the second coming, when the Antichrist sits down in the temple of God and says, I am God, there will be three and a half years before Jesus splits the sky, lands on the Mount of Olives, it divides in half, and he takes over the world, ushers in the millennial kingdom, and rules the world with a righteous scepter, and it is not a vote. He's not Democrat. He's not Republican. He is not a politician. He's a king, and he's going to come back to lead. Then we will have peace, and only then we'll have peace. Now, I want to show you, this goes all the way back in the belief system of the church. Look at this. The early Christian writer named Irenaeus wrote about this in the late second century. Look what he said, quote, but when this antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. And he wrote that 19 centuries ago. This is not a new revelation that Tim LaHaye came up with for his book series. This goes all the way back to the belief system of the early Christians. They knew this was coming. Let's go on. When Jesus describes the abomination of desolation, there is the presupposition, very important here, there is the presupposition of an operating temple in Jerusalem. It's got to be there. How can there be an abomination of desolation if there's no temple? It's got to be there. You can't have it without a temple. For centuries, there was only a small Jewish presence in Judea and Jerusalem. Their presence in the region was definite and continuous, but small. It's unthinkable that this weak Jewish presence could rebuild a temple. Therefore, the fulfillment of this prophecy was very unlikely 
until Israel was gathered as a nation again in 1948. And if you were alive then and you knew Bible prophecy, you didn't come out of your room for weeks. This was huge. Okay? The restoration of a nation that the world had not seen for more than 2,000 years is a remarkable event in the fulfillment and future fulfillment of prophecy. One of the more fascinating developments in recent history is the focus of Jewish and Arab conflict over the Temple Mount, where a rebuilt temple must stand. There is a small but dedicated group of Jews right now who are passionately committed to rebuilding the temple. Now, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know who's going to orchestrate it. But if you ever open up the morning news or the startlegram, and you see in there that something has happened and the temple is being rebuilt, lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. And it will come. It'll come. Now today, you can visit what's called the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. And there a group of Jews absolutely dedicated to rebuilding the temple, attempt to educate the public and raise awareness for a new temple. They're trying to replicate everything they can for a new temple, down to the specific pots and pans used for sacrifice. Israel is a nation again, amen? And efforts to rebuild the temple are real. The main Jewish group leading the charge to rebuild the temple is an organization called Faithful of the Temple Mount, who say they will continue their efforts to reestablish the Jewish temple on the mount. One leader of the group said, quote, we shall continue our struggle until the Israeli flag is flying from the Dome of the Rock. Woo! In Israel, there are students being trained for the priesthood right now, learning how to conduct animal sacrifices in the rebuilt temple right now, being trained. Rightly, Christians get excited when they see efforts to rebuild the temple at the same time you got to understand that the impulse behind the desire to have a place to sacrifice for sin, rebuilding the temple, is not the will of God because God's already sacrificed for our sin. He already sent Jesus to sacrifice, and, he, and, and he's the once for all, one and only, never need to be sacrificed again, shed blood. So their desire to do this is a statement of unbelief in who Jesus was, but it doesn't matter because God's already prophesied, God's already told us this is going to happen. Christians believe that all sacrifice for sin was finished at the cross. Any further sacrifice for sin is an offense to God because it denies the finished work of Jesus on the cross, amen. Now, these words of Jesus have led some to believe that all Christians, the church as a whole, will go through this time known as the Great Tribulation. And this warning must be for us. But Jesus promised to catch his people up from the earth and meet them in the air. Did you know that that's there? It's in first, I, I preach it at every funeral I ever do. I mean, I preach it all the time, but you can't do a funeral without preaching this because who you're burying, if they were believers, they're coming out. And so, and uh, he told us to pray. He, Jesus told us to pray that we would be counted worthy to escape this time and promise to keep his faithful from the time of judgment that would come upon the earth. 
He promised that. Jesus gave this warning primarily, I believe, as a specific amazing prophecy of events thousands of years before they happened. So the Jewish people during the days of the abomination of desolation would have a unique, powerful witness to Jesus and his word. Because here's what's gonna happen. The Antichrist will come into power. I believe he's alive today. I personally do. I don't know who it is. I know it's not Bill Clinton. And I know it's not any other Western politician. I have always personally believed that it's highly probable, very possible that he would rise up out of the uh, European Confederacy. He is a politician when he comes to power. He is very charismatic, very verbal, very persuasive, very hypnotic. And he takes power politically and he does it by settling the horrific issue of the Middle East conflict. He brings peace the Middle East. Isn't it amazing? Who would have ever thunk it that when you read the Bible or when you, when you saw what the Old Testament said, say 20 centuries ago, that one day the focus of the entire world would be right on that little dot on the world map called Israel, just like the prophets said. And that there would be a cry, peace, peace. Can anybody bring us peace? And every time I hear them say that, and they say it all the time, who in the world is gonna bring peace to this mess in the Middle East? Because now Jerusalem and the Middle East have become the sore thumb of the whole world. Just like the prophets said. Just read Zechariah. That's what he said. And now that's the case. Three and a half years into his very brief political rule, he will begin to resent the Jews worshiping anything but him. Shades of Nebuchadnezzar, shades of many of the great Roman emperors uh, who wanted to be worshiped above any god. And he will walk into the temple three and a half years into his rule. He'll walk into the Holy of Holies and he will sit down and he will say, I believe via worldwide television, I am God. You will worship nothing and no one but me. When he does that, the second half of the seven-year tribulation will kick into gear immediately. And the wrath of God will fall in an unbelievable, unprecedented fashion. He is the abomination that causes desolation to come to the temple and to the world. Coming on the heels of the abomination of desolation. Let's read it. Great tribulation. Look at what Jesus said. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created till this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord shortened those days, nobody, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. I've taught the book of Revelation. I'm probably going to teach it again, but I got to tell you the things that are released when the seals are open and the trumpets are blown in heaven upon this earth are incomprehensible. The Bible describes hail the size of basketballs falling on the earth, mingled with fire, the sun being obscured, the moon red as blood, and you see whole bodies of oceanic water being poisoned with blood and poisoned uh, where everything in them dies and a third of the greenery of the earth 
uh, dies and is consumed. I, it, to me, it's, it, it's, it's so clearly, or at least it looks like a nuclear blast to me. But whatever it is, it's bad. You don't want to be here. And according to Jesus and the word, you won't. You won't. But the folks who are left here and the Jewish people are going to remember some of we crazy Christians and what we said. They're going to remember our witness. They're going to remember what we said about the New Testament, about the Word of God. They're going to remember what we were preaching and teaching. Don't you, you know that it's got to be a, a providential hand behind the, the Tim LaHaye series, left behind more books sold than anything in history. God is telling this generation so that many people will remember what they read when they are left behind. Tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the creation. Think about that. Jesus said this will be the most awful time in all of human history when we consider the massive calamities humanity has suffered through the centuries. This is a really sobering statement. Let me give you a couple of instances from history. In 1343, I've read books on this. It's amazing stuff. A bubonic plague, the Black Plague, started to sweep across Europe. Over eight years, two-thirds of the population of Europe was afflicted with the plague. Half of these afflicted died. An almost incredible 25 million people died. But Jesus said this time of tribulation will be worse. Let's look at another one. Let me try this. Zbigniew Brzezinski in his book, Out of Control, Global Turmoil on the Eve of the 21st Century, sets the number of lives deliberately extinguished by politically motivated carnage at between 167 million and 175 million people. Staggering. Most other statisticians are in the same ballpark, yet Jesus said the time of tribulation he's talking about would be worse. Let's look at another one. Unless the Lord has shortened those days, if the terrors of the great tribulation were to continue indefinitely, mankind would not survive. So for the elect's sake, the days were shortened. Jesus said, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he's there. Don't believe it. Nobody should be deceived about the nature of Jesus coming. It will not be secret or private, and it won't be a different Jesus. In the midst of such tribulation, men will be tempted to fall for false messiahs as they are right now. But take heed, Jesus said. He said, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus told this to all of his followers as a warning so they would take heed. Jesus has reasons why he wants us to take heed, anticipating and being ready for his soon return. Here's why. It has a purifying effect in your life. If you really believe he could come at any time, you walk in straight. If you believe he could come at any time. It gives us a sense of urgency. That's why we're out to win souls. We're going to do our part. All right? It makes us bold in speaking to the lost. If you know you're, you're looking at a train load of people headed to a, a cliff and they're going to fly off, you don't worry about what they think of you if you start yelling, stop, stop, get off this train and, and get where there is safety. It helps us keep a light touch on the things of this world. Hold it lightly. Hold the things of this world lightly. We should also remember that God has reason for the time he has established. If Jesus 
called up his church to meet him in the air in, say, the 1970s? How many of you here would have missed the rapture? I was pastoring in the 80s, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, this thing moved through. And they had this little pamphlet going around all over the state of Texas and the United States that Jesus was returning. What was the year, Kathy? 87? The 84, 1984, he's, and, and I had my people, some of my people in my church were out buying property just so they could dig down in and, and hide from the tribulation, and they were quitting their jobs and selling their 401ks and going and having fun while they could, because he said he's coming in 1984, and I stood up and I told him, you're going to be made a fool of, and some of them left the church mad at me, but then 1984 rolled around, and the date, and I remember we were having church. Some of them were, and I said, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to know the date. But I just thought of that. Now, what, what if he had come a decade ago? How many of you would have been in that rapture? How many of you have come into the Lord since then? How many of us here right now are listening by radio would have gone through the great tribulation if the Lord had come then? We can all see that the time is close. Any extended time is pure grace to allow more to come in before the horrific events of the great tribulation. On the heels of great tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ will take place. Look at what he said. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. Then they will see. Can you say this with me? Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. And in those days, after that tribulation, Jesus said that the cosmic catastrophes he describes here happen in those days, the days connected with that tribulation. The sun darkened, moon not giving its light, stars of heaven will fall, cosmic catastrophes. This is the groaning of all creation that Paul talked about in Romans 8:22, And it'll come to one incredible crescendo before the return of Jesus. This kind of cosmic calamity is described in many Old Testament passages. You can write these down and read them. He's going to send his angels. They're going to gather together his elect. He will come with the saints in heaven to gather those uh, who have come to Jesus during the tribulation and have survived. We call them tribulation saints. People will be saved during the tribulation. They will be. Jesus speaks more regarding the timing of these events, talking about the parable of the fig tree and uh, when you see the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender, it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so what are we looking for, everybody? Watch the Middle East. Watch it closely. Pay real close attention to that Dome of the Rock, which is the Muslim site that has been built right where the temple used to be. Something's gonna happen to it. Now, I'm just saying something's got to happen to it. 
and the temple will be rebuilt where it was. In the meantime, the hour is short. God is moving. People are being saved. There will be an end of time as we know it. As the world crumbles around us, we are told many different things about what to invest in. Whether it's wealth, health, or earthly wisdom, we are constantly being bombarded with what should matter most to us. In today's teaching from Pastor Jeff, we were shown why it's important to invest in God's wisdom before anything else. The world will always fail you, but God never will. Stop wasting your time with what won't last and secure your place in God's kingdom. I'll hand it over to Diane, who will let you know more about Hardwired. You've been listening to Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. Would you be interested in helping support this ministry as we further the gospel? All you have to do is text 817-484-4767 and enter the word GIVE to donate. We're so grateful for your continued support in listening to this program and also investing in the ministry. Once again, text GIVE to 817-484-4767 to give. Here's Daniel one more time with a sneak peek about the next edition. In the next installment of Hardwired, Pastor Jeff illustrates the difference between authority and power through Jesus. Oftentimes, there's confusion that having power is more important than wielding authority, when really this couldn't be further from the truth. In your walk with Jesus, you need to put your focus on utilizing His authority to enact change. You need to wield God's mighty power, but it means nothing if you don't use it under His divine authority. Thanks for taking time to be with us today as we studied God's Word. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Jeff, visit hardwired.org. On behalf of Pastor Jeff and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again right here on Hardwired.